Hi, I'm Dr. Steve Elias, and welcome to another podcast of Vein Magazine, also known as Vein Specialists Sitting Around Talking, Having Drinks. In this podcast, in fact, our first podcast that involved members of industry, we speak about industry's role regarding education, regarding appropriate treatment, and regarding the development of new products. Our participants are Brian Dempsey, Scott Sentia, and Eric Heil. Take a listen. Well, welcome everybody to the Vein Magazine podcast, a new edition, but this time we have industry instead of uh, physicians. And as you all know, the uh, theme of the podcast is vein specialists sitting around talking, having drinks. Our vein specialists today are specialists from the uh, industry rather than uh, physicians, and we certainly need vein specialists in industry because we all use their products to take care of our patients, and actually without their products, we probably would be back in the dark ages just making big incisions, ripping veins out of people, and doing something else that we don't like to do anymore. Who is with us? is uh, Eric Heil from uh, from BTG, Brian Dempsey uh, from uh, Philips, and Scott Cynthia from uh, Angiodynamics. And they all play a huge role in uh, the management of, uh, of our patients. And we're going to get some of their thoughts on things. First of all, we have to make sure that uh, nobody was forced here. So, Brian, Take it away. Who forced you to come here? Uh, no one forced me, Steve. I got a nice email from you asking, and it was my pleasure to come participate because uh, it, uh, it, it's all about being in the industry for so long. It's truly about taking care of the patients and doing the right stuff. So thanks for having me. Oh, I thought it was just about you trying to do me a favor. Well, that's true too, but that's something different, right? That's, yeah, just kidding. All joking aside, I, I think it is important, and we do bring the new technologies to so you can take care of your patients and do the right things with the newer technologies. Okay, well, we're glad you're here. And, and again, those of you, uh, this is a podcast or uh, and or a, um, a discussion in Vein Magazine itself, so it's uh, not for visualization, but everyone should know that Brian did get a uh, very close haircut for, uh, for this podcast. Well, thank you for noticing, Steve. But remember, this face was made for radio. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, Scott? Cynthia, who's from Androdynamics, I know you were not forced here, Scott, but in a way we forced ourselves upon you because we are sitting in the Androdynamics Lounge at the American Venus Forum uh, meeting. Yeah, no, so thank you. I was grateful to uh, to be asked to be a part of this, and now I know the reason why, because we have a nice private lounge. It's quiet, kind of away from uh, you know uh, all the all the noise and everything else. Uh, so happy to uh, to be able to use this, but also. Uh, I'm excited to be a part of the conversation, you know, with Eric and with Brian, uh, as again, has, you know, Brian just mentioned a moment ago, it's, it is really about the patients and where this industry collectively, you know, I think we all face the same problems and, and the common uh, objectives that we that we have to solve for. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Okay, Eric, who should, oh, Eric, you already have your own microphone. Okay. Eric's from uh, BTG. He certainly is not uh, forced here at, at all, but he's sitting next to Brian. And are you okay with that? Eric? I, I'm okay with it for the time being. 
Steve, actually, um, now we, it may be a, a different conversation we need to have in the next couple of minutes, but uh, I really came for the, for the, for the libations. Uh, Brian told me a little earlier that, um, that was part of this, uh, part of this thing you put on, Steve. So, um, I'm happy to describe mine if you yes, like uh, for the record. Because tell us it is. about the aroma and, uh, the color of yours, it really looks good. I, I, I will. And just for um, uh, for record-keeping uh, purposes, it's a little before 3 o'clock Western uh, or Pacific Standard Time. So, you know, not not quite cocktail hour, but uh, yeah, it is. my, my glass is, uh, does have a liquid in it. It is clear, and it's not gin or vodka. It's uh, standard-issue uh, Weston Mission Hills Golf Resort and Spa tap water. So that's uh, that's what I'm having this afternoon, and and I as well am having that. Scott, you are having something a little darker, a little richer, could be interesting. A little more high octane. Uh, it is, uh, yeah, as as Eric just mentioned, three o'clock on the West Coast. Uh, I think the majority of us come from the East Coast, so uh, enough fuel to keep me going for right now. A little bit darker, a little bit more rich uh, in character. Um, yeah, it's coffee. It's Scott. coffee. It's just I, coffee. I, I wanted, yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you know. Come on, we're all in sales and marketing. We gotta embellish where we can. That's well, okay. You did a good job on that, Brian. If you can embellish on what's in your water bottle here, I'll be impressed. It is the shaker ball for my protein shake in the morning, and then I just continue to drink water all day to try to be healthy. Because you know me and health, I'm I'm faking it for the most part. <laughs> Okay, well, one thing we don't want anybody to fake about, although I will tell the readers, remember, we're speaking to industry, they're not going to be fake, but industry um, sometimes, you know, they have to semi-watch what they say versus what our physicians have said on the podcast. But uh, the three three people here, I'm not concerned they're going to say what, what they feel for sure. So one of the, one of the big topics that's uh, been around regarding industry and also physicians is the uh, coverage of the various technologies that uh, we use. And some have been covered for a long time, such as, uh, Scott, the uh, the laser and stuff, although you did have another product, which we're going to talk about the uh, the coverage, too. So you've had some challenges there. Brian, you've certainly have challenges in the beginning with the IVIS and things like that, and Eric regarding the, the Varathena and stuff. Switch it up a little bit in terms of, uh, Brian, the, the, take me through the, the IVIS and and where we stand now, uh, versus uh, when you five guys years first ago started out, yeah, right. So one of the key things is Ivis is we truly when you talk about having to join with societies and your competitors. So we joined uh, forces with Boston Scientific. We joined with uh, you know the a- a- the ACP, the AVF, SVS, SIR, everyone uh, to petitioned for uh, an actual reimbursement coding for uh, the OBL, realizing that IVIS uh, lend a huge uh, opportunity for the, you know very good diagnostic I- imaging uh, within the OBL setting. Uh, so it, it was a, a community uh, development to really be able to take that to CMS and get that uh, through the process. But it was everyone working as one team, which is very unusual in our competitive nature. Uh, but it was it was really neat to see and, and it came to fruition. And the key thing is patients are getting really good treatment. Yeah. No. And I mean, I, I agree with you. And that is the theme, I think, going forward, that societies have got to work together to get things covered when they think it's appropriate so they can give the best care for the patients. And industry, it's refreshing to see industry 
you know, work together. Eric, you had with Varathena, obviously one of the non-thermals, you had your, your own particular issues with, with getting coverage, but, but also there was, there's issues in general about coverage of the non-thermal, uh, non-tumescent technologies. When you guys working with any other either societies or other industry that, or have you worked to get the coverage for Varathena under the aegis of non-thermal, non-tumescent in general, or have you guys kind of gone on your own and been successful? Well, um, that's a great question. I'll uh, <clears throat> I'll answer the the, the latter first. The uh, early on uh, in the days of the commercial launch of Verathene, it was um, we, we we operated independently. We were the at that point the the second entrance into the uh, non thermal non tumescent market. So, for from our perspective, it was really on us to educate the payers. Um, and to ensure that uh, when the product was on the market, claims started coming through, that they would uh, that they would be familiar enough with it. Um, it took some time. Um, it always takes a little bit longer, if not a lot longer, than, than what we uh, what we expect from the commercial side of the business. But uh, but we were successful uh, with that. If if you kind of if you rewind uh, about six months and look back to the to the summer, and I'll, I'll use the. Uh, the, the Novitas uh, example uh, last summer, a, a proposed um, LCD was uh, was put forth, which uh, basically wrote out, if you will, all of the non-thermal, non-tumescent modalities. So, uh, very quickly, uh, industry, the, the 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 three industry partners, along with the societies, which included really six. Um, uh, work together for three or four months and really coming out with a, a specific position statement that was then submitted uh, to this Medicare MAC, Novitas, on behalf of the society. So there was some some behind the scenes uh, collaboration from an educational perspective on the on our individual therapies that uh, that came through with the society. So uh, to echo Brian's position on this and statement, it's critically important that the societies participate in this. And at the end of the day, um, it's the societies that that represents their constituency and the physicians and the providers that that are caring for these patients. And so they're the ones that need to drive it. No, I think I think that's uh, that's a good way of putting it. And it's a to me, it's always refreshing when everybody can work together. You know, I've actually wrote an article one time in Vein Magazine about the Peloton and and a bike race, and it really is the same thing. When the bike race first starts, the Peloton, everybody's working together uh, for the good of everybody because they know at the end someone's going to come out as a leader. But yet, it is if if you don't all work together, the no one can go go it alone in in a bike race, and it's the same kind of thing here with with industry. Now, Scott. You, Angiodynamics, you didn't necessarily have the similar, the exact same thing that, you know, that Eric had in terms of uh, getting covered for the non-thermals, but you were trying to introduce a new, or not a new use, but a to get approval for what had already been used, your product had been used for, which was perforator ablation. And what did you guys have to do in terms of, or where, where do you stand at this point? you know, with the perforator ablation? Yeah, so good question. Um, a little bit different, right? We don't really have an issue with the coverage of certainly our thermal, uh, but one one product in particular, uh, when we acquired it, it was being marketed somewhat off-label. Uh, we, we, we thought, based on the acquisition of it, that, you know, it was indicated for a certain obviously vain, the, the, the perforator, come to find out that, you know, it nece- we, we weren't necessarily marketing it and or selling it in that way. Uh, so we did. We had to put together uh, somewhat of a, a, a controlled trial to where we could, you know, find that it's safe and it's effective uh, in that uh, manner. 
with the product uh, the way that it was packaged and is packaged today. So once we finally had that indication, that's when we're starting to work closely with some of the LCDs and some of the commercial payers because they they typically will uh, point out what is covered, what is not covered, uh, specific to not only GSV but you know the uh, the perforators as well. And so that's been helpful now that we finally have indication, uh, you know, with that. All right, let, let me ask you guys. So why why is it that the payers, they're not, in general, they're not looking to say, how can we make this work? How can we, why is their, their first, you know, go around is show me, show me the data. And then, then once you show them the data, they still give you pushback. Why, why is that? Why, do you have any, cons- any reason why anybody here? Well, it's where do you want to start, right? Um, where literally, where do you want to start? So I think from, um, I'll jump in here if you don't mind, Brian. Um, oh, thank you. Um, so, you know, I mean, you think about, at least on the commercial side, you think about the business, uh, the business of an insurance company, taking as much as you can, pay as little out as you possibly can. I mean, that, that's just, I mean, that's the way it is. On the government side, obviously, they're, they're, they're working in the best interest of, um, of, the, uh, of the American people, obviously, because we know what funds Medicare uh, and, and what funds uh, CMS. So there, there is a fiduciary responsibility on that side, but also providing, uh, their, providing patients, uh, those, above, those over the age of 65, health care or access to health care. So there's, there's the governance side of it, but there's clearly the, the economic financial side of it. So how do you strike a balance when you come in with a new technology? How do you strike a balance in, in uh, demonstrating efficacy or, or improvement? or at least comparability, and where is the kind of the, the health, health economic story associated with that, which is becoming even more important today uh, as we're, uh, we're getting further along. But I'm still having trouble, and, and Scott or Brian, in that almost no company, certainly not in the vein where I can, I can tell you this because you know, I've been involved with, with new technologies since you know, the late 90s, no company is trying to get coverage or bring something to market that they feel is really inferior and they kind of want to pull the wool over everybody's eyes. I mean, it's it, you're not going to go to physicians or to insurers with data that shows that the product you're trying to get them to cover is, as, as Eric said, inferior to what's out there. So I'm still having trouble, unless it's, you think it's a pure economic reason, why they don't say, gee, let's look at the data. Okay, data's good. Yeah, we should cover it. What, 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 help me out, Brian, Scott. Uh, unfortunately, it is a business. Insurance is a business. And it was, it comes down to just as Eric said, taking as much as you can, pay out as little as you can. And as, as we know, um, when you have to go present, uh, you can have the best data in the world. And someone's been told, no, deny that by a upper person above him. No matter whether, you know, uh, and it's it's frustrating. You and I both have, have lived through this and trying to get uh, reimbursement for different new products uh, through the years that we've worked together. Um, and, and it's frustrating. We, we almost always seem to get it, but it takes us about six years and a lot of money. Yes, uh, but it normally takes, and we now know that, it takes six years to get a code and to get them to go, okay. But you really have to fight it tooth and nail because they don't want. Now, the government's a little different because they're seeing this. They're, 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 you know, we're, we're trying not to add to um, the, the, the CMS bill. 
you know, we all know that because of the, the cost of caring for our, our, you know, our parents. But unfortunately for you and I, it's closer than, than we'd like. But but the key is, is that uh, that's where you truly come in and show we're giving good care uh, and that we're being that socioeconomic uh, environment. Uh, but it does unfortunately come down to dollars and cents. Now, Scott, is there any are there any examples where a company, because Brian just brought up the amount of money and time it takes, are there examples where companies have made decisions, say, you know what, we got a good product, but but we're just going to stop this train and we're just going to cut our losses and, and move on? Yeah, I, I, Look, I, I, I can't share a lot, but when I look at where we're going from a strategic, whether it's in the Venus space or even outside of it, that certainly comes into conversation a lot is, hey, look at the technology, but from a healthcare economic standpoint, from actually getting coverage uh, and the amount of the investment it would take to do so, that always comes into play um, because it, you, you have to take that into consideration. You know, if, if, if it's going to be six years and millions of dollars later uh, into a crowded space or something that is good, but or a little bit better than what's currently out there, you know, what's the adoption rate going to be and why? And if I can make a comment just back on, you know, look, I'm obviously coming from a different angle when it comes to the payer, the policy reimbursement, especially in the Venus ablation space with the entrance of the non-thermals. My challenge, I think, with payers, and I have to be careful here, is I still question the, and I, I appreciate the process, but I question the disparity in the reimbursement, right? If the safety efficacy as well as the end result um, are all fairly close uh, and the success rate of the procedure is fairly close. I have to question, being a good steward of angiodynamics, why the disparity and the reimbursement? All right, so this is a pet peeve of mine. It's been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. In other words, when someone decides to place a total knee into a patient, they do not get paid a different amount, whether it's one brand or another. So, and I, and I believe the vein space is, is unique in this, you know, in that if you're in the arterial side, if you're using one stent versus another, one balloon versus another, you're getting paid to do the procedure. How did this happen? And while some companies might want it to continue to be a disparity between reimbursement, in principle, should it be a disparity in reimbursement? So I know I'm putting you guys a little bit on the on the line here, and you can be as politically correct as you as you want to try to be. But let's talk about about uh, first of all, how did this happen? How did this happen that certain technology get get reimbursed more, or some get reimbursed less to take care of the same problem, i.e., uh, superficial axial incompetence? Does anyone have an idea how it happened? You complete the. <laughs> No, I mean, I have an idea as to how it happens. Well, in, in reality, if you go back, I guess it's 12 years, it was the two products had drastically different cost points. And the government is not in the position of putting other of putting companies out of business. And they realize if, am I on the right page? If he's he's asking Eric, that. is he on the right Correct. page? We he's not there, asking we me. We were there together. Because I don't know. Oh, you and Eric yeah. were there together. Yes, we were there together. With Ve- yes, yeah. with Venus, Correct. right. So, yes. So, uh, and that was the key, was that they go, it, well, if we do that, that company goes out of business. So, they couldn't do it. So, that's where it came in, to my understanding. 
All right, Eric is continuing on the saga. uh, Yeah, by biting my tongue here. So, I I mean, at the um, Brian's exactly right, but I I think if you look, you look at the way um, valuations are assigned to therapies, especially where there is the this, the, 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 what they call the non-facility practice expense, and supplies are rolled into that. So if you, if you roll back uh, to the early 2000s and in 2005 when the, the thermal modalities were assigned new CPT codes, new at the time, and they're still in existence, the, 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 the cost of those devices or the supplies from the manufacturer was taken into account. And so there was an RVU assignment uh, tied or in a certain number of our views tied to the to the supply side. So when the, the 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 laser devices came to the market, it was Diamed, it was Angio, and it was Dornier actually out the time. And then Tool Cool Touch came out shortly after that. There was um, you know they they fell under the under the the thermal ablation, but specifically the the laser side. So the cost of a laser fiber, the equipment, everything else that goes along with it, had a certain what they call average sales price. On the, the the Venus Medical, which is now the the closure device or closure fast, which uh, Medtronic currently has now, at the time had a higher ASP, so there was a higher number of RVUs. So there, therein lies the disparity between the two. No, two right, valuations. and I know I know how, I I understand the thinking behind it. I wasn't quite sure as to why it occurred. Now, Brian, you you discussed why it occurred. It was because the government didn't want to put particular companies, you know, out of business. But but do you all think? Don't you think enough is enough? Don't you think at this point in 2019, we, we have to, you know, let people know there's going to be a different business model going forward that you need to put into your equation of when you bring a technology to market, that this is what you get paid to take care of this particular problem? And then, or do you think we should continue it on? Well, in, in reality, about nine years ago, there was an article written and the, the name of the article, if I remember correctly, was uh, 510K means nothing if you don't have reimbursement. So you need to have that identified before you ever go down that road. Okay. And no matter how great a product it could be for the patient, uh, you know, it, it is a business. Should it change? Probably. Right. Is it going to change? Probably not. Uh, but in reality, like you said, you get a total hip, total knee, it's one fee. You get a, 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 you know, you put in one stent, you're getting that. You put in two stents, you're not getting any more, you know, in, in, in certain settings. So um, the, the key is, you know, if it's, you know, you're, you're, someone's going to have to petition, someone's going to, you know, societies or whatever, it's going to have to be a team play. Who's willing to put the money up to do that? Because, again, we're all in business to four stockholders. Is that fair? Yeah. Look, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with anything that you said. I, I, I do find it somewhat interesting, right? I mean, you know, I commend you on what you're doing with um, the appropriateness uh, and misuse, I think, especially in this space and, and, you know, what we're seeing out there, which I think has also potentially threatened the way that reimbursement will look in the future because there is an increasing eye on the just the overuse, I think, of thermal ablation or non-thermal ablation in the, in the Venus space. Let me, if you don't mind, I know this is your podcast. But no, you I'd can, like to. I'd like you to can ask take you. Over. Actually, people, a, people a have question. taken over. You can, you can take <laughs> I don't over. Want to the, say, uh, maybe it's the, the, uh, the, the coffee kicking in. Um, but I mean, how different would this space look if there was reimbursement equality? And do you think it would help uh, diminish a little bit of overuse or abuse within the space? I'm not sure it would uh, uh, decrease the overuse or abuse. 
But what it would do, and, and we've discussed this at, at meetings, is that it essentially, for most people, most practitioners, they would use whatever is cheapest and whatever they would make the most money. Because as, as you all have already said, it's in a, you're in a business to make money and the doctors are in business to make money. So honestly, I mean, and I've written articles, you know, regarding when I think non-thermal is better than thermal and when a particular non-thermal, a particular thermal is better than another one. Put that, yes, I would. that's what I would try to do. But honestly, if you're making less money using one versus another and you say, you know what, all right, patient may be a little more tender or they may be a little longer to re- I could see most practitioners saying, screw it. You know, I'm going to, I'm using when I'm making the most money because most people are in the business to make money. The doctors, I mean, I'm in the business also, but you know, I would hope that I would try and, you know, do what I think is, is appropriate. So I think that's, it would change patient care. You know, people might try and push the envelope with a particular technology because that's the one that they make the most money with and not use the correct technology for the correct, or what I would feel is, is really the optimal technology for that particular problem. Eric, grab the microphone. You want to say something? Well, I was, I was just going to say it, it's unfortunate that, that that's almost a forced behavior um, by virtue of the, the, the model that we're, we're dealing with uh, today and specifically this space. And this isn't unique to just the treatment of uh, venous insufficiency and in office-based procedure. It is across the board. I mean, look at any subspecialty, um, especially with the advent of, of um, uh, interventionalists moving uh, OBLs into uh, or uh, office-based uh, labs. And uh, so all of a sudden, the practices and the physicians are incurring 100% of the cost. So, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, um, it's the environment that we're, we're living in. And, and I understand the hypersensitivity on behalf of the payers and overutilization um, and the concerns there. And I think, you know, the, the, the treatment of chronic venous insufficiency and the number of vein specialists out there today versus where they were five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, um, has all of the payers concerned and actually has us concerned as well, industry as well as, uh, as, well as physicians. But I, I still believe and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume goodwill across the board if every physician out there could make a decision hundred percent of the time based on the right thing for the patient cost was not an issue profit was not an issue that the, the right choices were would be made and I still believe that's the case today but from an industry standpoint and I'll uh, actually I will speak for for Brian and Scott because I, I know they've been in this business a long time we as industry stay within the bright lines when it comes to um, promoting the spread not promoting the spread it's very clear that uh, that it's something that uh, that cannot be done and should not be done and so again it's uh, is promoting and marketing on the clinical benefits of the product but we also can't deny that there are economic factors and drivers associated with that so let's get I, I agree with you let's get a little bit Scott you hinted at it already and and we've had at other meetings the last year at the expert Venus management meeting we had an industry round table and this is one of the questions and I'll ask you guys as well some of you were there so there is overuse and also at times abuse of the various technologies what and then I'll give you my feelings what do you feel is your role in identifying these and with whom do you work with to try and minimize the overuse and abuse understanding as we already said, the more product you sell, the more money you make. So, what what is, where do you feel industry's role is in this in this issue that we have now of this overuse and abuse? 
And Scott, since you brought it up, you're going to answer first. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, look, I, I, I think, you know, to Eric's point just a moment ago, you know, from an industry perspective, we, we definitely play above board and have to play above board. It is a business, um, but we are very cognizant and recognize that, you know, from where we sit, you know, our sales team, there's a number that they have to hit. And, um, and, and typically they're going to run after and try and hit that number no matter what. However, right, we have oversight of that and, and we could, you know, depending on where this overuse or abuse is, is occurring, um, you know, we can control it a little bit. We can manage it, right? Um, the thing for us, is it always goes back to the clinical efficacy and the outcomes of the procedure itself and making sure that where we can help through physician training and education that we're doing our part. Um, now, look, I, I think it's safe to say because this, you know, there's, there's, there's other um, suppliers out there that are doing things a little bit differently than what we are, uh, but you can see that they're not at some of these meetings, right? They're not supportive of, uh, I think, some of these societies and everything else. And so uh, I think for us, I think for everybody here at the table, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but I think we do a good job of recognizing and, and managing it where we can, knowing that at some point, if we don't, it, it could have a drastic effect on our entire business, right? And I, I think that in itself is, uh, is a significant risk. You know, it, it, it going through the educational component, and you know, we go to the leaders of the societies that are the trainers and holding the courses. We it, we're not doctors; we can't say what's right or wrong in that patient. He's making that decision uh, for his patient. The key is it's now up to you guys, as the societies, to come up with guidelines and manage yourselves, because there's no way we could do that. There's no way we could do that. It's got to be on 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 the societies as their role no, I, I, to govern. Each I agree. Other. It cannot be asked of you to govern. No, I was just asking where do you see your role in this issue, not for you to so, to solve the issue, because there there is a component. You know, industry there is a component, and unfortunately, there are people. Your sales team, some of them may know particular practitioners who are not playing above board. And are doing things that maybe are not correct, and you know, and it may bother some of your your salespeople. Some of them may not. They may be happy they're selling more product, but but I, but in general, I think they want to do the right thing for the patient. Your salespeople. So, I, you know, I'm not asking for whistleblower or anything. I really was just wondering: is where is your is your on the front end? I understand your role, education. Okay, on the back end, when someone's been quote educated, but now they're stepping over that line is there any role at all and if there's not let, let me know let our listeners know what do you think eric yeah no there it's there their industry does does have a role uh and i think should be held accountable uh up to that point as well although we're, we're we won't be the police we're not the police we can't police the physicians but we can control it uh to a point and and i think what was it last summer or, or uh, a year and a half ago that the piece that that we did in in Bain magazine we spoke to this you asked that specific question and i think a number of us responded to that and i think industry's role in that is is, is education and training but also uh to, to to be aware and to be able to recognize when when something like that may be happening and so there is absolutely no problem with uh, with industry alerting um, their their various departments, whether it's um, whether it's quality, uh, whether it's a member of the medical team, 
you know, us on the commercial side um, may not necessarily be the ones to have that conversation, but can certainly raise it to uh, to, to a group within the organization uh, that can that can have that conversation with the physician. And depending on the specific situation, it's certainly certainly something that's uh, that's flagged within BTG. And and I think also it's a it's a cultural thing. I mean, I know. You know, we all have certain types of uh, DNA within our within our organizations, and I know I can speak for BTG around our our corporate values and and and, and, and DNA. It's just it's innate, so you know the difference between right and wrong, what feels right and what doesn't, and you need to know when to call it out. And that's something that uh, that I know that 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 that, uh, that we adhere to. And, and that's a great point. It's something that I miss, but internally, right, especially at Andrew Dynamics, it's not only making and, and, and training and educating uh, externally, but internally for our sales teams and for every department we do, uh, there's a rigorous you know, onboarding process and making these reps and everybody that's an employee at Angie Dynamics understand, you know, again, our mission, our values, uh, but also understanding the risks involved uh, when they see misuse or something that shouldn't be going on, right? And understanding that there are going to be repercussions uh, and, and identifying and staying away from those. No, I, I, that's good. And that's, and that's refreshing. But, but let's just go down a little bit more in terms of the, 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 the beforehand, not, not the kind of catching up when someone, a physician is not doing the right thing. When you guys make a decision, do you have any criteria? And what are your criteria regarding who do you, who will you not educate on your product? Who will you say this is not the kind of person now, I'm not talking about the specialty of a physician. They're not the type of physician, or is there, or or you don't make that. And if you don't, please just be honest. Uh, you know, when with, I can understand with who safe you, harbor laws, that's against the law. With safe harbor laws, that's against. So the law. you you will by law, if you call me up, I have to answer your call. But but is there ever a point where you say, you know, I this guy he should just not be. You know, you go and talk with him. He should just not. We really shouldn't train him on this, or or you can't. You don't. I mean, I'll use the example. Sometimes one of the I will get you guys out of this, so I'll give you some more time to think. So I'll use the example I've given these talks. You know, with veins, who who should you not treat? And one of them is uh, if you if you don't like the the patient, just give him stockings and tell him you know wear the stockings. Do you do you? Is there any equivalent to that in industry? Or if there isn't, please tell us. Um, you're, you're really digging in here, Steve. But, but so no, it's I, okay. I, I, know, I know what you're after. You're after the, ju- you're after the juicy stuff but you, here. So. But you can say, no, we don't. Officially, we, you could be honest. Or if you do, you could say, yeah, sometimes people kind of don't pass it. We don't think that they're the right, they don't have the right skill sets. They don't, whatever. Yeah, we and and I, I'll I'll speak from where we are with BTG, and I've I've been with other other organizations, uh, Volcano Phillips, in the early days with with Ivis. There were clearly um, uh, interventional cardiologists and and a few interventional radiologists, and and at the time when a number of the the endovascular or the vascular surgeons were becoming endovascular trained and learning how to use Ivis. Um, you, you know, you really had to you really had to make sure you had your clinical specialists there on side, and they were getting the proper training uh, well ahead of time. But then there were clearly those that you just knew you really did not um, necessarily want this in, in in their hands until they were they were more properly trained. I, I would say from BTG's perspective, um, with at least with Verathena, we've had the luxury of of having um, certain criteria as part of our FDA um, part of our FDA clearance and and submission. 
to require physicians to have a certain um, level of, of previous training and, and have experience in the treatment of, uh, of, of venous disease and a certain number of procedures. So it's made my job that much easier when those folks, we did run across those folks, is to kind of pre-qualify and pre-exclude some of those early early on. But those that, you know, say you're, you're three or four months down the line, they've done a handful of procedures and you just have that feeling that things aren't things aren't going the way they should, um, we, we have no hesitation to raise the hand and, and, and run it up to a member of the medical team or a member of a quality team to handle. Um, and it should be done. It's the right thing for, at the end of the day, it's the right thing for the patient and it really is the right thing for the physician and the provider because you're keeping, you know, potentially him or her out of, out of, out of trouble to begin with. No, all right. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it and don't worry. Dude, I didn't dig that. Did you have something, Scott? To- no, I, all I was going to say is it's tough to say no, especially when they seek us out uh, and say, Hey, we, we want to not only use, but be trained by you. Um, it, it's similar to what Eric was saying. We have whether it be a, a subset of new specialties or um, you know something different where we see uh, a physician or practice just not getting from a procedure standpoint the, the the technique that is necessary, you know we will adapt or we will adapt our training curriculum and onboarding and everything else a little bit differently just to meet those those needs. But then to your point, um, you know before like we will support certain cases as as long as we possibly can before we feel comfortable um, or have a you know very you know, heart to heart, sit down and say, hey, I don't know if this is going to work for you. We have seen those in the past. What's been nice for us just recently is uh, some of the local coverage is requiring you to be an interventionist to be do these procedures, hence, and using our products that, you know, just anybody can't pick it up and do it. So they're starting to govern and that appropriately, that only the appropriately trained physicians can use these products and do these procedures. So that's something that's changed in the last six months. Well, that's good. And as Eric pointed out, it makes your job easier. I I don't have to please anything. I don't have to say, you know, you know, tell the dentist he can't do this, you know. (laughs) All right. So let's, we've been, not so negative, but let's go a little bit more positive. So, you know, as I've said many times, I mean, vein disease is an incurable disease and and the population is getting older and none of us in this room, we're not going to run out of patients. There's going to be enough patients going forward, certainly within our lifetime. So the two of you actually want to talk about the, what you call DTC or DTP, direct to consumer or direct to patient marketing. You guys doing any of this? Anybody? So it's something that we are, are certainly taking a look at. I mean, I think with the advent of, of Facebook and social media and how these patients and, you know, regardless of what they're, what they're looking at, you know, uh, WebMD, right? They're, they're self-diagnosing themselves. We're asking ourselves internally, how do we, how do we reach these patients uh, better than how we're reaching them today? More importantly, how do we educate them to where they are very well aware of the different types of treatments and, and the risks and the complications associated with those? Uh, but I'm curious as to, you know, again, we're not going to run out of patients, but we still have, it's somewhat underwhelming to see the amount of patients considering seeking treatment. Why aren't they? I, I feel as though from an industri- or industry perspective, you know, this has been, you know, these procedures have been out there for a while. It's been pretty well known, pretty well publicized. But yet they still, and I don't know if it's a pain threshold, I don't know what it is, what is it preventing them from going to seek treatment? Or even when they do seek treatment, 
why don't they actually go back to actually have the treatment done? What was it about that you know, initial conversation with the physician or with the provider? Uh, those are the things that we're looking at. And I, I find it on, you know, interesting with the AVF and what they're doing with this patient engagement survey. Um, I'm excited to be a part of that. And I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, to try to get into the minds of the patients more so than what we've done. We've been focusing a lot on just catering to the physician and to the provider, which is important. But knowing that the patients are having a little bit more influence, and I think the decision-making process, uh, we have to focus on them differently today. No, I, I, I think I think you're right. And, you know, physicians themselves do a lot of direct-to-consumer marketing as well within their own area, you know, the, the ads and stuff like that, because vein disease also is a self-diagnosed disease. You don't need any special tests. Someone just looks down at their legs, or they know that they had a blood clot in the past. So you can, you can bypass the referring physicians. But Eric, any thoughts about direct-to-consumer marketing? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's, first of all, from an industry perspective, it's extremely expensive to do. And how do you ensure, I mean, how do you really measure that, that ROI, which obviously we, we, uh, we're, we're, we're keen to. And, and, it, and that's one of the things that's really, really soft. And as a result of being so soft, I think industry buy in general, and I'll speak for I'll speak for actually all of us. We want to make sure if we're going to do that, that um, we're going to receive some some type of return because it is extremely expensive. Um, and I can tell you that there you know there have been initiatives by other organizations and other companies that have spent millions on trying to educate, going directly to the consumer or to the patient to try to drive those patients in for at least consultation and uh, and again it's 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 very difficult to to to, to measure the results of uh, or the you know the return on that if you will but at the end of the day it really is going to be what it takes because you think about the fraction of patients that that find their way into a vascular specialist's office for consultation and uh, and and there's a reason they're there um, it's it's either it's either the visible varicosities or it's truly the symptoms associated with a medical condition that they just can't take anymore. Many of them just simply don't know. They think that well, it's restless leg. That's what my primary care doctor told me, or that's what my aunt told me, or that's what I found on the internet, and they just live with it. And it's a shame. But it's uh, again, um, I think the AVF is stepping in and, and, and doing something, uh, doing something the right way, and, and pulling together this survey to, to really educate these patients so they find their way to a vascular no, and, specialist. And, and yeah, and, and other organizations are trying as well. I mean, Brian, from from your viewpoint, I mean, there are people, so many people walking around have had previous DVT or with a unilateral swollen leg, and they don't even know where to go, and by the time they go to a vascular specialist, they've seen like three or four other specialties, and still many of the vascular specialists aren't even aware of what the problem you know could be. So again, is is the problem that that there's just no way of of uh, measuring the the return on investment when you go direct to consumer? Have you done anything in a smaller sense, meaning you've taken a physician in a specific area? And marketed in that area for you know. Have you had a previous DVT? Have you have a swollen leg? No, none of you have done that. You you can't do that either. Safe harbor laws. I can't promote you and not promote the doctor next door to you. Also equally. So that that's again that prohibits us from doing that. No, I I don't think. Um, yeah, the physician specifically, but but go into a geography where you've got a you've got a handful of physicians. Educate in that area, and it really is up to the patient as to where they go. Correct. And that's a, what, what Phillips has done is put on un, 
global the, these dinners and talks to educate pri- the, uh, the well you know, the primary care physicians um, uh, just about the disease process and what what it is and so that they can identify it and be sending the patient and so that's not it's it's a program but it's run by a third party we have PVD and me which is peripheral vascular disease not venous but vascular disease to educate the patient that they can go to again it's unbranded never says Phillips. Uh, that we, we've we've stayed away from uh, the direct to consumer, but you are correct. You, you know, we go to a wound center and go. Have you ever th- thought, of, you know, where that venous stasis ulcer came from? And literally, the podiatrist says, "No, no, that's that's a whole other thing. The whole that's the, the a whole wounds, different deal. because you all make products that could be treat wounds in a in a really good way. And then I use all these products to treat wounds. But yeah, but you just got to make them. So the direct-to-consumer is just not really a viable thing for industry to do from me. Okay. So, no, we've been for quite a while. This has been extremely refreshing. You guys have been as, as open as industry people can be. You have been. I'm quite impressed, honestly. And we'll see what the final product comes out once you run it up the flagpole. <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd like to take the first pat at the pass at the uh, the editing. You if, will, you know, don't you worry. it goes too far up the flagpole. We will. And uh, for the end of this... It's almost getting to uh, time for real drinks. We may have to do that later on and maybe do another podcast while we're having a drink. But I want to thank all you guys, um, Eric Heil, Brian Dempsey, and Scott Sentia for, for being part of the first uh, industry uh, broadcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us and, and, and cheers. Cheers with cheers. some water. Yes, yeah, cheers, here. guys. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. We try at Vein Magazine to bring you what we think are the important topics in the vein world. We'd love to have your thoughts on the Vein Magazine podcast. Please review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Vein Magazine with Dr. Steve Elias. Thanks, and we'll see you on the next podcast.